This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. We're in, around the middle of a sermon series on uh, the book of Romans. We're going to take a break of, from Romans uh, during Advent. And so we've gotten from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 7. Uh, in January, we'll pick up with chapter 8. But so just to kind of, it's helpful to do a little bit of a review uh, for those of us who've been walking along on this journey. And maybe this is the first kind of time you're entering into this, kind of get a sense of where are we. We're going to look at all of Romans chapter 7. And, and the main idea behind the the book of Romans is this idea of justification by faith, that the people of God live in relationship with God by faith, right? It's not our works that earn our salvation, but it's by faith we live. And so Paul in the first um, uh, four or five, really uh, probably five chapters is really focusing a lot on that relationship that we have with God that's by faith. And over and over again, he's been reiterating this this reality. But then he makes a turn in chapter 5, 6, and 7. Then he begins to, as he moves from justification, which is this idea that I'm right with God based on what God has done, he turns toward sanctification, which is this lifelong journey that once we have been made right with God in relationship with him, this process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. We are being sanctified. We're being made holy. And that is a lifelong process. There's never a point at which uh, where we get it. You know, we don't think, okay, well, when I'm 70, I'll really be there. How many of you in your 70s are thinking, man, I, I have got this figured out. If you do, see me after class. Thanks, Gene. Uh, raise your hand if you want to talk to me after class, right? So we, we know, wow, I'm not, I'm not there, and yet God is still with me in the journey. He is still for me because he has already accomplished this justification for me. And he loves me so much, he doesn't want to leave me as I am. He wants me to mature in Christ and to become more like him. But even when I'm not maturing in Christ, even when I'm not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, he still loves me because of what he's done for me in Jesus. So then because I think about that reality, that even uh, in Romans 5 it says, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That reality that, that yeah, I'm still a broken person. The truth of my justification is real, even when I'm a sinner. And because I realize that when I think about that, then it makes me long to be more like Jesus, to demonstrate the kind of love that, that Jesus demonstrates for me. Like he, he reveals his love to me, so therefore then I want to reveal his love to other people. I'm willing to examine myself and to ask myself difficult questions uh, so that I can be more like Jesus. And, and I'm going to mess up. We do every day. Uh, there's things that I'm going to do that are not, uh, do not reflect the person that I am in Christ, and yet Jesus still loves me. And so as we make this uh, turn here in chapter 7, we're going to be looking at uh, the law and how the law is used to help us in that sanctification process. Like, what is the purpose of the law? And it's helpful for us to, to ask that question. And I just want to say that, you know, these last couple of chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7, there, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of deep stuff here. Uh, thankfully, I didn't have to preach the last back of uh, the part of Romans chapter 6. That was on Russell to do that. And Russell, thank you for, your, for sharing. Because it's really complex, and it's, really, uh, it's hard to understand. So I'm going to try to pull out some small ideas for us so that we can learn then how to apply God's word. And in, in, in everything, we're asking, God, what are you saying to me? 
through your word that I can apply it to my life to be more like Jesus. So don't get lost in the weeds. Try to think of one thing, learn one thing, and do one thing this, this week. Learn one thing and do one thing. So we're going to look at, I'm going to read to you, uh, with you, uh, four, uh, just three verses, Romans 7, uh, 4, 5, and 6. And then we're going to begin to kind of go through the chapter. And hopefully God will teach us something uh, even through me. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members or our bodies to bear fruit for death. But now, We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Lord, thank you for this this day and this opportunity that we have to, to reflect on your word. And we know that, God, we can't really understand anything that you're saying apart from your Holy Spirit. So I pray for all of us as we, as we just take some time to lift up your word, that you would be speaking to us through your word, that you would confront us, that you would convict us, that you would remind us of what the good news of the gospel is. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, and, and remember why we're studying the book of Romans. Okay, so we think about this little church that existed in the most significant city of that age. Right? They were not a large group of people. They had no political power. Uh, they had no influence. Uh, they had no military. Uh, they had really probably very little resources. And yet, through this letter and by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the good news of the gospel, that little community began to grow. Because people were drawn to their way of life. They were drawn to their spirit. They were drawn to how they served one another and how they shared their lives together. They were drawn and they were, and people uh, connected in part of that community. And, and eventually, they became so significant that they essentially changed the whole world, right? Because we know that the city of Rome for, for many years was the center, was the hub of Christianity for the whole entire world. How is that possible that a small group of people could be so impactful on the whole world? Well, if they had the spirit of God, they had the gospel, and they lived this out certainly in the same way that we do, in an imperfect way. But so as we study God's word, as we're, when there is so much division and there is so much strife, how do we as God's people live in the world that we can be world changers too? In a, in a cosmic sense, in a universal sense, change the whole world maybe, but also just changing one thing. From, 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 so how do I live in love over the Thanksgiving weekend? How do I care for and serve my community in a deeper and more profound way? And so that's what we're trying to do as we study uh, Romans. Well, there's a song. Uh, it's an old song. I want you to finish, the, uh, finish it for me because I think you know. I fought the law and? There you go. I knew Gene would know who sang that song. Did anyone else know it was the Bobby Fuller Four? Anyone else? Yes, Jim, thank you very much. Two people? All right. There's probably some more in there. I fought the law and the law won. Here are a couple of other lyrics from the song. It starts out, I'm breaking rocks in the hot sun. 
Yeah. I needed money because I had none. Come on, y'all. So he's, he's uh, robbing and stealing with a gun and he's in jail. I fought the law and the law won, right? What, what does that communicate to us? That the law wins, right? We have this idea of the long arm of the law that it, it eventually always gets it. And in, in this passage this morning, it's entirely focused on the law and the role of the law in our lives. Now remember, we've already understood completely and fully what, that we are justified by Christ. And now we're in this section of sanctification. So what role does the law have in that process of me becoming more like Jesus if I already know that my salvation is secure? And one of the things that I've said to you a number of times uh, before is like when we think about the law, uh, we think, oh, am I breaking the law or not breaking the law? Well, you you don't really break the law. Uh, the, The law breaks you, right? Like the law of gravity. You don't break the law of gravity. The law of gravity breaks you. You can stand on the top of a building and say, I'm going to break the law of gravity, and then you jump off, and what happens? You fall down and die. You don't break it. It breaks you. And so there's this sense in which the law breaks us. But for what purpose? What purpose does the law break us? That's what we're asking, and we're wanting to apply that in our lives. And so if you're following along in the sermon notes, there's a a bunch of points there, five points. What is the law's essence? We're wanting to ask, what's the law's essence? So he writes, uh, Paul writes in in verse 1 of chapter 7, Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Paul is talking about the law. What does that mean? What's he referring to when he's saying the law? He could be talking about the Old Testament law that's revealed in the Torah, right? The Ten Commandments and all that they apply. That narrowly means uh, that when they would refer to the law in one case, it's the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. But also the law in the Old Testament means everything that God is communicating when he gives those Ten Commandments, all of the law, which is more of a a revelation of God's character. It demonstrates to the people the holiness of God, what kind of God it is that we serve. And through those commandments, uh, there are things that we are not to do, right? We should not commit sin. We should not lie. We should not steal. We should not commit adultery. But there are also things that we are called to do in the law. You are to love your neighbor. You should also tell the truth. And so these statutes and these commands that are revealed to us in the Bible reveal the character of God. But there's another kind of law that we might think about that Paul is communicating here. This sense that, that, that everyone, deep down in their heart, even apart from the Old Testament law, has a sense that there is a right and there is a wrong. Right? And this comes through, C.S. Lewis brings this up in his book, Mere Christianity. It's this idea of ought. You ought to do something. Right? If someone comes up and sits in your seat, you say, you shouldn't be sitting in my seat. You shouldn't do that. Or you shouldn't trip your brother or your sister. You shouldn't do that. That's not the right thing to do. And we're appealing then to this higher law, this, this sense of right and wrong that we, we can appeal to. Like That's just not a right thing to do. There's something about that that is wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. These, these ideas are eternal overarching truths that, that determine what is right and wrong. The hard part though for us 
is that whether we're thinking about the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments or this eternal uh, natural law, we don't often apply it in equal ways. Right? And we touched on this in chapter 2 of Romans. There's this sense that we, that we don't really judge people in the same way that we judge ourselves. Right? We tend to compare ourselves to one another, and we often give ourselves a lot more credit. We, we, we are much more patient and kind and understanding with ourselves than we are with people that live in our home or that drive alongside us on the interstate or that work with us in the cubicle next door. We're much more patient with ourselves. And we don't apply the law in an even way. And we compare, we say, well, look at what I did well. And if I didn't do a good job, it was because I was tired or because I was stressed or, or I just I had a bad day. Um, often we're not willing to apply the law really fairly to ourselves. We're not willing to admit our, our own mistakes, our own failures. And that's kind of the opposite of, of boasting, right? Um, instead of being honest with our struggles, we're, we're we, we won't even acknowledge them sometimes, or we want to cover them up. But when we do that, when we're not honest with ourselves, what that leads to is just discouragement. It leads to depression. It leads to defeat. So then our answer is what? Sometimes we just say, well, let's just lift up the law. Then let's make the rules stronger. Let's announce some rules. So if we are clear about announcing the rules, then we'll get what we want. But what does that do? It just piles on the guilt and it piles on the shame. I just feel, I feel worse about myself. There's this heightening sense of failure and misery. Oh, I, haven't, I haven't done what God wants me to do. I come in and I, I feel guilty because I haven't been a good Christian. I haven't been what God wanted me to be. And so I, I don't even want to come in to encounter God. I don't even want to be with the people of God because I, they'll just know that I'm a failure. And, and look, at, look at the lives of the people in here. They're just, everyone's got it so put together but my life is in ruin and I'm, I'm just bad. We're defeated. But here's what Paul says in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it, no longer, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Have you ever had that feeling? The sense that like, I know what the right thing is, and I want to do the right thing, but I keep doing the wrong thing. I keep doing the wrong. I keep speaking to the person that I love in that way, and I should not do it. I keep struggling in the same area. I know it's wrong, but I keep going back to it. I know the right thing, but I, I just keep doing the wrong thing. This, then Paul gets to the end of the chapter. He says this, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man. You just feel that sense of discouragement and despair and defeat. And so that's the essence of the law. That's the essence. It, it, it communicates to us who we are. So then what is the law's purpose? The bad news is bad. We're going to get to the good news soon, okay? Don't, don't be discouraged. What is the law's purpose? Verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. This means that the purpose of the law is to reveal to us our sin. It reveals to us the moral character of God, his holiness, his perfection. And at the same time, our imperfection, our unholiness. So like when you look into a mirror, it's only when you look into a mirror that you're able to see uh, the imperfection, right? You're, you're not as good looking as you were last week. You, you, and, and you know, if you see, if the, if the lights are low, if the lights are low and, and the mirror is kind of, uh, you know, foggy, you look pretty good. But then, you know, they had those vanity uh, mirrors, right, with all the lights, like the 121 gigawatt whites, uh, lights on the, on the mirror, and they, they magnify. And if you get really close to that mirror, you're just like, whoa, what happened? How did this happen, right? Everything is wrong here. Back up. Turn the light out, sorry. Turn the light out, and let's just get back to the real me, right? No, but this is the real me. The closer you get to it, your, your, yourself, you realize, wow, there's, there are some imperfections here. The hair is not as thick and lustrous as it once was. And it's a mirror. So the law is essentially a mirror that reveals to us who we are. But it's fascinating to me that I think about where we are in our culture. Like where, where are we in the world? There's the sense that there's a movement away from this transcendent law that applies to everyone. You know, in the past, um, there were, while there were many different kinds of religions, there were like these different sort of uh, sacred orders. In these sacred orders, there was good and there was evil. There was an objective sin and guilt that you could identify. Now, um, there were different uh, definitions of how that worked and how you would be reconciled with this good and evil, but that was a present reality. But today in our society, in the name of individual freedom, my rights and my freedom to live the way I want uh, to live, society has declared that there's no transcendent reality. In fact, the, reality, the only reality is the reality that you make up for yourself. Your truth. People like to say, this is my truth. It's my truth. In fact, the only moral standard in today's culture is the idea that you're not allowed to make a moral standard. If you say that there's objective sin, and there's objective truth, and there's guilt, that's bad. Now, in doing so, people that make that statement are themselves making a moral judgment. So it's kind of a difficult argument to make. To say, there is no moral judgment that we can make in and of itself is a moral judgment. However, that's the culture in which we live. But we know deep down that things are not right with the world. We can't break the law of gravity, even though we try. We're constantly trying to present ourselves in the most favorable light. We either turn down the lights or we put something on to cover so that we'll be accepted and embraced because we know deep down there's a problem. We think about uh, the filters that are created for apps these days, right? Uh, they have all different kinds of names and you take a picture of yourself you take 200 tries to take a picture of yourself to get just the right angle 
you know, bad angle, right angle, good, you want to do it down like this, because if you go from up and it's the chin issue, you want to come like this, and then you, then you can scroll and make it so that it just looks good, just the right filter. So that way when you present yourself to the world on Instagram, you look really good. But when there's no filter, when there's nothing in between us and the camera, that's who we really are. And it's the same thing with our hearts. When the holiness of God peers down into our hearts, it's damning because of the law's perfection. And the more we look into it, the longer we see that it doesn't make us better people. The law doesn't make us better people. It just reveals how bad we are. So, so how does this actually uh, work itself out? Let's look at the law's power. The law's power. Verse 7. What shall we say then? And as he's talking about coveting, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive from the law. Apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So Paul is saying, look, when I hear the law, you shall not covet, sin moves in my heart to make me covet. Now the law is not producing sin in me because the law is not sinful. My heart is sinful. But it's the law that brings that sinfulness out. So simply hearing, do not covet, I begin to covet. It's like someone saying, don't think of a pink elephant. Right? And you just did. When you hear, do not covet, you start to covet. Right? The, the Westminster Confession tells us this about that commandment, the 10th commandment. That we are to be so completely satisfied with our own status in life and have such a proper loving attitude toward others that we are naturally inclined to wish the best for them and all their possessions and forbids any dissatisfaction with what belongs to us, envy and grief at the success of others, and all improper desire for anything that belongs to someone else. That's what it means when we say, do not covet. That I can celebrate everything that you have and rejoice in all that you have. And I am completely, 100%, totally thankful and grateful and satisfied in what I have. There is nothing that I long for that I don't already have because I know that I have everything in God. And any time I'm outside of that perfection, I'm living in a state of being in covetousness. Are you so satisfied with all that God has given you that you are naturally inclined to wish the best for others? Do you envy what another has? Do you desire someone else's talents or gifts or kitchen or car, or children, or wife, or body, or hair? Or are you completely satisfied with all that God has given to you? I don't know about you. Maybe you guys are different from me, but I don't dwell in a state of lack of covetousness. I do long for the things that others, I sometimes do have trouble celebrating for other people. I don't know if you guys identify with that, but I certainly do deep down in my heart. See, when we hear, do not covet, 
And as we begin to expand the definition of what coveting means, boy, we really begin to covet. We realize, wow, I have, I have done that. But it's not the law's fault. It's sin within me. Verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I, not, I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law. That's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, that sin dwells within me. Sin that dwells within me because of my fallen state is the what is producing evil in my life. See, when I, do, when I, when I want to do the right thing, but I don't, it's that sin is still in me. This idea is, uh, some scholars have called this remaining sin. It's the sin that's still there. Yes, I've been justified by Christ. I am perfectly holy in my relationship with God from an eternal standpoint. And yet, because I've not been glorified, I haven't died yet, I still have remaining sin that I've got to struggle with and, and deal with. It's a, it's a true reality for me. John Calvin says, here remains in a regenerate man. That means a person who's who's redeemed, who's connected to God by Christ, a smoldering cinder of evil from which desires continually leap forth to allure and to spur him to commit sin. A, a smoldering cinder of evil. I think about a, a tree somehow that had a little bit that was burned and the, the firemen came and put it out and yet there's a smoldering cinder down in there and it can still create a flame within that tree to burn it down to the ground. It's this remaining sin that's a part of us. We think it's gone. And yet then all of a sudden, I'm led to covet something. And it can burn down the house that's been created for me. See, the bad news is there's always something below the surface. Sometimes that comes out through harsh words or through anger or through bitterness or not being able to celebrate something that someone else has. But here's the good news. And boy, don't we need good news right now. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my body. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, we see this tension that Paul delights in the law, even though the law stirs in him a reality, an understanding that he's sinful. He realizes that sin is deadly in his life. It takes him captive. Wretched man that I am. We think about that. But the law is a blessing because it reveals to me those areas of sin in my life. Because if I go on coveting, if I'm living my whole life thinking about what other people have and longing for what others want, I'm never going to be satisfied with what I have now. I'm never going to be able to rejoice and to celebrate all that God has given to me if I'm always wanting what someone else has, no matter what it is. If I can't celebrate when someone gets a promotion or gets a victory or is a winner, 
that I'm going to be discouraged and defeated all the time because people all around me are things, having things to celebrate. Can I celebrate with the people who are around me? See, the law reveals that to me, and through Jesus Christ, that I'm made right with God, and I can rejoice in and celebrate in him. See, the law is a blessing. Yes, it reveals my need for a Savior, but it points me to that wonderful Savior, the only one who can truly give me life. See, the law in and of itself is a blessing. So let's go back to this idea of gravity, right? You can't break the law of gravity. And, but why would you want to? I mean, gravity is good. How are you going to throw a touchdown pass without gravity? There is no juggling in the world without gravity. There's just enough gravity that we are able to get up and out of bed today, even though it gets harder every single day. There's enough gravity that we're held to the ground. We're not floating around in space. Have you ever seen an astronaut try to eat, right? The only way you can drink is right out of a squeegee bottle. There's no soup unless it's out of a tube. There are no charcuteries in space. Now, could you imagine you've seen those big trays with meat and cheese and pickles? All? You can't do that when you're an astronaut. But we can here. Why? Because gravity holds all those delicious items. When you spread out your Thanksgiving table, thank gravity. Thank God for gravity that's holding the stuffing or dressing, whatever you say, in the pan. Right? Gravity is a good thing for us. It does restrict us. It does contain us. But it's something that essentially allows us to function as people. Well, the law is the same way. It restricts us. It contains us but it allows us to flourish. Yes, it will break you if you jump off a building, but it also holds you to the earth in just the right way. You see, the law is the same. Yes, it can break you and it will break you, but when you turn to Jesus Christ and you trust in him for deliverance, then it's a blessing. What does David say in Psalm 1? I meditate on the law day and night. I delight in the law. How can he say, about the law, this thing that brings condemnation and reveals sin in him to be something that's worth celebrating and meditating about because he knows his relationship with God is not based on what he does. It's because of what God has done. And so then we read the law, we meditate, and we think about it. We examine ourselves. We think, Lord, we, we we're talking about coveting and worship today. And I just, you're revealing to me these areas where I've been coveting. And Lord, I just, I acknowledge to you that this is an area where I've been coveting what someone else has, and I want, Lord, to confess it to you. I thank you for revealing it to me, and I recognize that it's caused me to become bitter. I've become angry. I've not been able to celebrate with my friends because they have something that I want. And instead of getting near to them and rejoicing with them, I've, I've become drawn away, and I've become angry. I've become bitter toward them. I've become bitter toward you. And so, Lord, I'm so thankful that you've revealed this to me through the law, that you love me, and that I can be completely and totally satisfied in Jesus Christ. That, you know, I, I can celebrate with them. And, and what I have been given is so wonderful. You have been truly gracious to me. Right? This is the, the fulfillment of the law. That is in the purpose, in the person of Jesus Christ. And the blessing is that it reveals to us our sin, and the fulfillment is that, that Jesus Christ accomplishes it. So that no matter what anyone else has or is going to have or is getting, I can celebrate with him because I have the most important and wonderful thing ever. And that's a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. And he loves me so much that he's going to use the law in my life 
to reveal to me those areas that are holding me back from living in joy because I've been so concerned with what someone else has. And that's what the law does. What a wonderful and gracious thing that God would do for us. I mean, think about this last verse here, verse, or, or, or verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This body that is dead in sin. Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a way to finish. Thanks be to God. Because yes, Lord, I do long for what other people have. I do sometimes think, man, when's my day going to come? What about my story? What about my payday? And yet, God, you've already given me so many wonderful things. I have so many things that I can be thankful for. And what a great week to be spending time in gratitude, considering all that God has done for us, first and foremost, through the person of Jesus Christ, that he would take covetous people like us, and he would say, I want to be in relationship with you. And I don't want you to live in that. I don't want you to worry about what someone else has that you don't have. I want you to be thankful to me because I want you to live in wholeness and in freedom and in joy to be able to celebrate life. And that's good news. This chapter on, on Romans 7, it's, it's deep. And at first you're just like, oh man, it's hard. But then when you get to the good news, which we always get to, which is Jesus, it is a blessing. It is a huge blessing. Because how would, it, how would it be different for you in your relationships as you function in the world if indeed you were celebrating what others had instead of longing for it? How would you be if you're thinking about the gratitude that you have for all that God has given you? Because if you're thinking about what you want to get, you're going to keep what you've got to yourself as much as you can. But if you're thinking about, Lord, look at all the blessings you've given me. How can I share this with the people who are around me? How can I give this away to those that don't have as much? Whether that's a meal or a financial resource or a word of encouragement or a blessing or time or a relationship. How can I give? Because, Lord, you've given me so much. It totally changes our posture. It changes our attitude about how we go to work, how we live in our family, and in our relationships. So what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for this year? What are you grateful to God for doing in your life this last year in 2021? We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be grateful for in our lives that God has, has given us. We're all here. It's astounding to me. I remember when uh, in March of 2020 and we realized there's this pandemic happening and we're looking at, you know, how it's going to go, epidemiologists and whatever. And, you know, we're just thinking, wow, this is going to be really intense. And I, I remember saying to, uh, to one of the elders, I think we're going to have to do a lot of funerals here. We're going to need to get some kind of cord to stream the funerals because we're not going to be able to get together. And that's going to be really tough because, you know, people will die in our church. And we've only had one death in 18 months, and it was... Adrian Lancaster, who lived a glorious life till I think, age 95. Right? That's a gift. We're all here. <laughs> We're on the right side of the grass today. That's good news. We're thankful for that. I'm thankful that you're here. There's a lot of you here. This is great. Don't breathe anybody else's air, by the way. Not that I believe in knocking on wood, but just in case. No. God is protecting and caring for us. That doesn't mean that we won't go through difficult things, but we have a lot to be thankful for. We're here together. What are you thankful for? And then if you're thankful for something, how then do you live that out? 
with the people that you live with? How can you be generous? How can you extend kindness? Realize the purpose of the law is to point you to Jesus. Allow it to push you to Jesus so that you can rejoice in him and then live a generous life of gratitude and thanks. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.